You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Radically Pragmatic. I am Tressa Pankovitz, co-director of the Reinventing America's Schools Project at Progressive Policy Institute. Today, we're gonna be talking about National Charter School Week and some rules and regulations that are changing for charter schools at the federal government. Last week was National Charter Schools Week, and this year, about 1,000 parents, students, and school administrators and teachers all descended on Washington, D.C. for the occasion. But this year, they did not come to celebrate. Unfortunately, they came to protest. Charter schools are under attack. What do we do? Stand up, fight back. What do we do? Stand up, fight back. What do we do? Stand up, fight back. Those parents are angry about proposed rule changes that the U.S. Department of Education wants to make to the federal charter schools program. On Wednesday, they protested the rule changes at the Department of Education and at the White House. Charter schools, in case you're not aware, are free public schools that are operated by an entity other than the traditional school district. In every state in the United States, except for Arizona, charter school operators are required to be nonprofit. The schools are required to follow state and federal laws, like, for example, the American with Disabilities Act, the Civil Rights Act, OSHA regulations, and so on. But for the most part, they are free from school district rules and other collective bargaining agreements that restrict schools' freedom to innovate. In exchange for their enhanced autonomy, they are subject to heightened accountability. By that, it means if they fail to live up to the terms of their charter, which is really just kind of a fancy word for contract, they can lose their right to operate the school. So that really does create a level of accountability that we don't see in traditional schools in school districts. Public charter schools value is that they offer parents an alternative to the school in the zone that was assigned to them by the traditional school district bureaucracy. This gives parents, and in many cases, we're talking about low-income parents here, an alternative to what might not be a very high performing or even a failing school. In large urban districts especially, too many students are zoned by geography to substandard schools and that is something that's just been a problem in this country for decades. High school student Luciana Pena traveled to Washington DC from Oakland, California to protest those rule changes. She explained to me why her charter school is so important to her. I actually went to a private Catholic um, elementary and you know high school was different because things got more expensive you know money was definitely an issue and I actually looked into some charter schools and I found one near my house and Unity was the closest one. Unity had a lot of stuff to offer um, considering the academics it was just a lot of programs and yeah I decided to go to Oakland Unity. And, and how do you think your school is different than the traditional district Well, we're like a family. It's less of like, you're going to school here. It's like, no, we're a community. We're going to do things together. We're out here together. It's like, what school offers that, you know? 
Luciana, like the majority of charter school students across this country, is a minority. And as you just heard, her parents have limited income. But charter schools do more than just provide options for minority and low-income students. They also provide non-traditional school models for students with unique needs. Charlie Carver is an administrator at Michigan International Charter School, which serves students up to the age of 22 who failed to graduate on time, but who still very much want to get their high school diploma. It's, a, it's an absolute game changer for them and their families. We do have a lot of students that are um, parents themselves of, of sometimes multiple children, and they, they can't sit in a classroom all day. They have things they need to do for their kids and for their families. So high-quality charter schools are accountable, free, and they design themselves to meet the particular need of the community that they serve. So it sounds great, right? Why the big protests then? Well, in reality, charter schools are highly political, although when they became legal 30 years ago, that was not the intention. In fact, 30 years ago, even teachers unions were originally on board with these new innovative schools. But as they began to proliferate and spread across the country, and as the unions started losing dues-paying members because more and more teachers started taking non-unionized jobs at charter schools, charter schools became a hot potato. I am not a charter school fan because it takes away the options available and money for public schools. That's President Biden on the 2020 campaign trail. Like most campaign rhetoric, reality didn't turn out exactly as promised. And in this case, that's a good thing. President Biden isn't trying to wipe charter schools off the face of the planet, but if his education department's proposed rules go through as written, they will make his administration by far the most hostile to charter schools since they were created by state law in Minnesota in 1991. Charter school advocates say U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona is seeking to change the rules around the federal charter school program in an effort to greatly curtail the growth of new charter schools and the expansion of existing ones. Because, hear me, as a woman of color running a charter school, philanthropy is not available to us. We need the federal government to help us open schools. 1% of private philanthropy is available to schools who are run by people of color. We require the federal funding to help us do that. That woman speaking at the protest in front of the White House is Miriam Rocca. She's the executive director of the Bronx Charter School for the Arts, and she serves on the board of the Black Latinx Asian Collaborative in the Bronx in New York City. The federal funding she's talking about is the federal charter schools program. It is the only source of federal dollars for charter schools, and it accounts for less than 1% of the Department of Education's $27 billion K-12 budget. It's critical money for charter schools because unlike traditional schools that can levy taxes or pass bonds to pay for and maintain their facilities, charter schools are on their own. Yes, state and in a few cases, local education dollars do follow the students, so charter schools are entitled to that money. But when it comes to the school building, charter schools have to fend for themselves. Some do get generous donations, but as you heard from Miriam, they aren't spread around equally. So charter schools either have to go into debt or divert dollars from the classroom to pay for their rent or their mortgage. 
Enter the Federal Charter Schools Program, or the CSP for short. The CSP was designed to help new schools get their footing. It not only provides financial assistance to help charter schools finance their facilities, or more commonly known as their actual bricks and mortar school, it also provides financial assistance to help them with financing and planning program design and the replication of high quality charter schools. So if you think about a charter school as a new business and in cases where it's a mom and pop, just single site charter schools, that funding is critical. The CSP was created by President Clinton in 1994 and it's a big part of his legacy. That's part of what makes the effort to get it under a democratic administration so frustrating for people like Sarah Carpenter from Memphis who is one of the most respected parent empowerment activists in the country. But I feel betrayed by the White House. Yes, I do. Because I thought he would do something better than what we've seen. He was for charter schools when uh, he was with uh, Obama administration. Come on, dude, what's going on? These people get in office and they get in the teachers union pocket. And when you're in somebody's pocket, guess what? It's hard to get out of sometimes. I'm speaking my truth. I'm speaking for myself, what I believe. Yes, I do. Going forward, the department's proposed new rules for the CSP grants would require applicants to perform what they're calling a community impact analysis to see if student numbers in a district warrant the creation of additional school seats based on enrollment. The problem with this, though, is that public charter schools were not designed to act as temporary classroom trailers to catch overflow students from crowded traditional schools. The department's rule change ignores all of the other reasons that parents and the community might want a charter school, like perhaps better quality instruction or a longer school day, a longer school year, or a specialized curriculum like a dual language school or a STEM or an arts integrated school. Angela Case is a parent coordinator at one of these specialty schools in Philadelphia. Like we have open enrollment and we have over 1,600 parents that applied to get into the charter school. Um, and so, of course, we can't take any more than about 150. Wow. And so they go on the waiting list. In a school district like Philadelphia, which lost 4% of its students during the pandemic, an overabundance of traditional school seats would make it very hard for a high quality in demand charter school like Angela's to qualify to expand under the proposed rules. Charter school advocates say that is especially unfair given that many charters performed better during the pandemic than many traditional public school districts. At Bronx Arts, that meant that we closed on a Thursday and opened remotely on a Monday. We delivered computers, we delivered food to our families. We needed it every day. And we teach reading, and we teach math, and we teach science, and we teach social studies. The proposed changes are an attack on charter schools. And those small innovative schools that we need, that need the funding the most. Another proposed regulation would give priority to CSP grant applicants who find a traditional school district willing to, quote, partner with them. Andy Rotherham, who is a nationally known education reform advocate and a member of the Reinventing America's Schools Advisory Council, may have said it best. That's like requiring a mom and pop coffee shop to ask the neighborhood Starbucks if it can open down the street and compete with it. 
And as Rotherham said, that's just not a condition that should be put on charter schools. The proposed rules would also require schools to demonstrate their intent to have a culturally diverse student body and staff. And that is a very noble goal and one that no one would really argue with, but it is a requirement that will make it extremely difficult for schools seeking to open to serve underrepresented populations or populations that are geographically isolated or indigenous populations. Advocates say that nearly 60 years after Brown versus the Board of Education, it is just highly misguided to put the responsibility on charter schools to fix inadequately integrated school systems. Um, you know, they point out that public schools that are traditional schools don't face that threat if they are found to be violating federal law. But at the protest, there was an abundance of equal opportunity parental outrage. Familias Latinas, ¿qué le decimos al presidente de Estados Unidos y qué le decimos al secretario Cardona? Déjenos en paz. Gracias. Um, we have a parent organization called um, Families Being Involved, FBI, and so our families are very much involved. They are involved in some of the decision making. We've um, developed programs from those meetings. So they're here with us today as well to stand up for charter schools. Why did they want to come today? Because they wanted to support the charter school and it's important to them. There is absolutely no doubt that while some of these protesters did get some financial assistance to be able to come to DC and have their voices heard, this is a grassroots response all the way to the proposed rules that would prevent charter schools from thriving. Is this your first time doing this? Yes. How was the experience for you? Um, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, but <laughs> we're getting through. You're doing I a feel great good. Job. I feel good. Well, you're doing a great job, and you guys look great. So what came out of this big protest in Washington, D.C. last week? Well, by the end of the Charter School Day of Action, it was actually the Department of Education who was protesting. Its spokesperson said the regulations were being misinterpreted and its stance on the proposed regulations was softening. But as of this taping, no revised drafts of the rules have been released, just more justifications for the rules as written and promises that the draft regulations don't really mean what they seem to say and what hundreds of people came to Washington, D.C. to, to argue about. The protesters did take it as a good sign that they caught the administration's attention, but they say the fight is far from over. Who really, I want to ask the question, who's really running the education department, Department of Ed? Who's really running? That's the question need to be asked and answered. We voted for you, but we just like we voted you in, we can vote you out. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.